John chapter 7, three verses today, verses 37, 38, and 39, introduction to the concept of the indwelling Holy Spirit for believers. If the title sounds complicated, it's because the content is. So, as you were taught in elementary school, put on your thinking caps. We're going to have to talk about some subjects and subjects within a subject that are a little bit complex. John chapter 7, verse 37, I'll begin. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone think, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, I want to pay careful attention to the first part of this text. Because if you look at the Papyrus 66, this is a very noteworthy papyrus. It's, it's an almost complete book of John. And it was discovered um, a long time ago. Uh, it was in the 20th century. But when it was discovered, it was amazing because it was even still bound. And most of the Gospel of John is contained within it. It's a fascinating text. It's one of the most one of the earliest, it's dated between 100 and 200 A.D., so that's very close to when John actually wrote it. So it's very, there's a very good chance this particular papyrus text, this Greek text of John, it's a very good chance that whoever copied it copied directly from John's. It was a second generation, so first generation copy of the original writing of John, which is very intriguing. And in that papyrus text, it doesn't say on that great day. It says on the last day of the great feast. So using one of our most reliable ancient texts of the Gospel of John, the emphasis is probably not necessarily on a great day, but on a great feast. And the culmination would be that last day. We're going to read about it in just a minute. And Jesus' reference here to Scripture no scholar has been able to find any particular scripture that says it word for word the way Jesus says it. So it's an allusion to multiple texts. You'll see them come up behind me, including Psalm 46, 55, 58, Ezekiel 47, and Zechariah 14. All of those mention that living water. Why is this such a significant passage? Well, I leaned on my old mentor, Dr. P.T. Butler, and I'm going to see if I can read it off the wall like you are doing because I can't read it in my notes. This is right out of his textbook on the Gospel of John. And originally his books on the Gospel of John, his commentaries, and they're actually designed to be seminary textbooks. Originally, there were two volumes. They were combined into one in later years. This would be in volume two. But this is particularly referencing verses 37 and 38, which I just read. So I'm going to read it to you. You can see it on the wall behind me. Some of the background of the ceremonies during this feast will make Jesus' words in verses 37 and 38 much more significant. 
Each day of the feast, the people came with palm branches and limbs of willows to the temple. They held these branches over the great altar of burnt offering until they formed a sort of roof and the people marched around the altar. While the people were thus marching, one of the priests went, according to the ceremony, to the pool of Siloam and filled a golden pitcher with about two pints of water. As he returned through the water gate, the people chanted Isaiah 12, 3, With joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. The priests walked up the steps to the great altar and began to pour the water out into the altar, and the people began to sing the Hallel, Psalms 113 to 118, to the accompaniment of the flute. And then he goes on to suggest that it's quite possible that when this is happening at the culmination on the last day of the great feast, which is the Feast of Tabernacles, if you don't recall, this is the one where they are um, very excited about the harvest and they've, uh, they've reaped a, an incredible harvest. And this particular thing is to symbolize the rains the blessings of God, the salvation of the plants to come, the rains will allow for great produce. This is living water. And it's, he suggests that it's possible that at this time where they are celebrating the living water only provided by God, salvation to the world because it's living water. Without this water, our crops won't grow. And then Jesus then says, you need me. I am the ultimate living water. And there's a reason why P.T. Butler believes this probably happened at this time. It's because when everybody's dwelling on this, then Jesus mentions that he is the living water, this salvation that only comes from God. Many have already begun to believe that he is the one and now many more. So now look at verse 39, and you might see this differently as we read it, understanding all of those things. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. And this is where the complications begin. Because as he's talking about him being the living water, he's speaking of a gift of the Holy Spirit. And this gift of the Holy Spirit is confusing because people have made it confusing. God is not, but people have over the years. So I'm hoping to provide a little bit of clarity today. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit in three particular aspects. I'm going to give them to you one at a time. We'll take them piece by piece. First of all, let's look at the first one, which is, you'll see it come up behind me, convicting guide. So there's a lot to the Holy Spirit. I'm only talking about three different aspects today. The first one is convicting and guide. The second one is manifestations. And the third one is indwelling. We're going to talk about these one at a time so that we can possibly gain some understanding. First, we need to address a, a glaring subject at hand that comes to mind when we start talking about God, the Father, and, and Jesus, the Son, and then the Holy Spirit. What inevitably comes is the question of the Trinity. So I've got a diagram up behind me. You can see that's symbolic of the Trinity. Sometimes you'll see 
circles also within this. And I like that circle when it's kind of cool, but you don't see it as often. So I thought I would show you this common symbol. If you're one who likes symbols, and maybe you're one that's thinking about creating a family crest, like your family doesn't have one, so you want to create one. What, what is it about your family that makes your family unique? Maybe you are drawn to God, and you want to throw this into your family crest. That would be a cool thing to do. The Catholic Church is accused of making up a doctrine called the Trinity that does not appear in the Bible. There's a lot of people that like to argue that because the word Trinity does not appear in the Bible. However, the doctrine of the Trinity does. Let me explain it to you. And, and I know you've, many of you have taught kids. You go, well, it's kind of like water. You know, there's different forms of water. There's ice and, the, and there's just, just plain uh, water. There's mist. You could just go into these different things. Okay, I understand the Holy Spirit. No, you don't. You just talked about water. I mean, it's very, very hard to wrap our heads around what God has uh, fashioned for our own success. And we'll talk about that as well. But first of all, this represents God. That's what the Trinity represents. You'll see that in the middle. And they all intersect and they all intertwine. But let's talk about the top one. That's the Father. That's what the top point represents. The Father represents the Father, the one who is... Um, of the Trinity, representing a father figure. And in God's design, we've talked about this before, God set this up so that we could see more success because we're supposed to see him as a father described in the Bible, not as any father on earth. However, the fathers on earth do have a great responsibility because people's concepts of God will be shaped necessarily by their thoughts of fathers on earth. And if we have fathers on earth who are not taking seriously their role, that could damage people's ability to understand a heavenly father. This heavenly father, I, uh, I've come to know and appreciate, and, and it's helped me when I try to understand the heavenly father painted in the Bible, because it helps me to understand what I need to be emulating. A father that loves in an unfailing manner. Even as I fail, his love never fails. He always wants to be proud of me. I don't care how old you get. As long as your father is alive, you want him to be proud of you if you have any type of relationship with him at all. I was recently speaking to uh, my biological father on the phone, and he was questioning why... Uh, some conversations were happening about one of his sibling, one of his children, one of my siblings. And I told him, you know why that happens, don't you? It happens because your adult children want affirmation that you're proud of them. It seemed to catch him off guard. Like he never thought of it. Just so you know, it's the way it works. So the father, the father who loves... I, I was really troubled when I first learned of how contaminated somebody's mind can be of their view of God the Father when I was teaching. And in 1987, I started a chaplaincy program for incarcerated female youth. And as I was doing one of my visits, I was actually leading the teaching. And as I did this, I mentioned a loving Father God. 
And a teenage girl innocently spoke up and said, how could you say that God is a loving father? You have no idea what my father did to me. And I, it caught me way off guard. I thought, oh my goodness, she can't even wrap her head around a loving father because she didn't have one. Our father is, as described in the Bible, a father with unfailing love. Then there's the son. You'll see the S. That represents Jesus. That's on the left-hand side of the Trinity diagram. And that is the love of the father is expressed by the sacrifice of the son that we see in Jesus, who demonstrated all kinds of support and love and teaching while he was here in the form of a man here on earth. He showed selflessness, which is very important for us to understand this whole concept of God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the last one is the Holy Spirit. You can see that as symbolized as HS on the right-hand side of the diagram. And this is what we need to kind of nail down a little bit today because we are introduced to the concept of the Spirit in the Gospel of John. Later, John's going to bring this Jesus is going to bring this up again in John's gospel, and John highlights it in a very, very excellent way to provide comfort to the disciples that are concerned about their future. But first, let's go ahead and uh, let's try to put this together. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How does that work? They're all God. Each one is part of the Trinity. Um, they're separate, but still together. How does that work? Well, let me try to explain it to you in a way that maybe you can understand. It's, I'm not going to use water. I'm going to use this. As you see standing before you, a person who's delivering the message this morning, the preacher, I am a father. I am a brother. And I am a son. And I'm a husband. And I can go down the line, but I, I am a one person, but I have different roles. And maybe you can understand that when you think about the Trinity. And maybe you'll begin to understand the role of the Holy Spirit when we kind of peel this back a little bit in a moment. First of all, let's go ahead and talk about the convicting, the conviction, uh, the guide, the Holy Spirit. We read in the Psalms, David saying to God, please don't remove your Holy Spirit from me. David is very concerned with the Holy Spirit, with the Spirit of God, and he doesn't want the Spirit of God removed from him. But think about this. David's concept of the Spirit has gone from um, this, this Spirit of God that stays in one place and is, is protected and represents the glory and the power of God. And he finds stability and strength in this. And that's why he wants the Spirit of God to remain. This convicting and the, this conviction of the Spirit, this guide of the Spirit, does not necessarily mean that there is an indwelling Spirit. It just simply means there's conviction and there's guidance. And that's the piece we're talking about. There's more to the Holy Spirit, but we're talking about these particular pieces today. So you can be convicted of the Holy Spirit guided by the Holy Spirit, and not necessarily have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Just understand that. Now let's go ahead and talk about the manifestation. Oh, by the way, this is the conviction and guide is not indwelling. You'll see that up behind me. Oh, with, with, not in. So it's with you, not in you. 
Now let's look at the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. We're going to have to talk about this one in a little bit of detail because that's where much of the confusion comes in today's world. Just understand that this with, not in concept, is also attached to the manifestations of the Holy Spirit. With, not in. You see that come up also behind me. Now, let's go ahead and talk about some things that you might have already thought about. In Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 1, we read, this will give us a little bit of insight into the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. These are the disciples. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided Tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And this is some, where this confusion comes in. I'm going to talk about the specific Greek word that's used here a little bit later. But we're not going to do that right now. When you read this, I hope you don't read this and think, this is what's supposed to happen in our churches today. And today, if the Holy Spirit is going to come, there's going to be a fire divided, uh, and, and it's going to like light us all up, and we're going to have Holy Spirit indwelling in us. That's not the way it's going to play out. This is the way it played out as things began, on, as the church was born on the day of Pentecost. Now, to throw something else into your noodles... We'll go to Acts chapter 10, verse 46, and read, and following. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. And this is when the house of Cornelius came to Peter, and Peter had to be, it had to be hammered into him that these people are not considered unclean, and no foods are considered unclean anymore. But then, when, when it was shocking to everybody, he's like, oh my goodness, they have the manifestations of the Spirit because they are actually speaking in tongues. And they are, as they do this, hey, um, why can't they be baptized into Christ, which is a, John's baptism, use water, baptism for repentance and forgiveness of sins, and then you receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Well, wait a minute, they already had manifestations. That's right, because manifestations does not necessarily mean indwelling. There's a distinction that needs to be made, and that's why people, people get so confused. So it was a, a painted picture for Peter to see and the other disciples, hey, God can allow these people to have the manifestations of the Spirit without actually being baptized in the Christ and being given the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So let's allow them to have that. This is where a lot of the confusion comes in. And there, let me give you some more. In uh, Acts chapter 19, we'll start with verse 2. This is the only case we see people rebaptized in the Bible. It's fascinating. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into, into what then were you baptized? 
They said, into John's baptism. That's a baptism of repentance, you know. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Hmm. So they were baptized for repentance, John's baptism, to believe in Jesus, and they didn't know about the Holy Spirit, so they didn't have the indwelling Holy Spirit, and it's like, oh, okay then, we need to do this right. And so they were baptized so that they would have the indwelling Holy Spirit. I know it's confusing. I'm hoping to help you out here as we move along. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33, the first part of it says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And particularly when this verse, if you read, read this in context, you're going to read it, it's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And, and that fits within the context of what we do in worship. So when you read this, you read, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. You'll read before and after it some, some descriptions of how you're supposed to have orderly worship in the churches. And that is not something we see sometimes in some of our churches when we don't follow the instructions there. That's why we try to have orderly services. Okay, now... All of that, we'll try to put some things together. I want to go ahead and look in the same context in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we'll start reading with verse 28. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? No, oh, it, it quit, didn't it? But it says, eagerly desire the higher gifts. Interesting. So this is a ranking that God inspired Paul to write. He gives you the ranking of these gifts. Notice as he starts off, he, he's begins by saying, first, apostles. Then, he's second, and he goes down the line. Notice the last one, tongues. I don't know about you, but I, I love many of the people that I've worshipped with, and I've been in many churches. I cut my teeth on a church that was an Assembly of God church, which is related to the Pentecost, Pentecostal churches and the Foursquare Gospel churches. Um, anyway, I've been in many churches that emphasize tongue speaking quite a bit to the point where if you attend, you feel like if you don't speak in tongues, you're not spiritual. They'll, they'll, some of them will actually say that. You, you'll get there. Eventually, you'll rise to the top. My Bible and your Bible says that's the least of the gifts. Why have some denominations overemphasized it? I was given a privilege Back in, I believe it was 2002 or 2003, my, the first time I attended Northwest Christian Ministry, Ministries Conference. It used to be called a different thing. Um, it was about 3,000 people attended every year, preachers usually from multiple denominations. One of the churches that frequently at the time was providing the uh, ushers was one of these 
uh, Four Square Gospel Churches, Church of the Living Water down in Lacey, Washington. It's an interesting history there with connected to the church where I served for almost 20 years. But they offered a special class for Assembly of God pastors that year. And I thought, I looked at my name tag and it didn't say what church I was with. So I thought, I'm going to sit in there like I'm one of them. So I did. I sat in there to learn what are they going to do? Because it might be fun and exciting and I want in on this, whatever it is. And what it was, was it was, it was a rebuke to their churches. They had some high-ranking person come in there, and they had a panel of people, and they said, we are driving people out of our churches because we're overemphasizing tongue-speaking. And they actually went through Scripture, 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 15, and explained to them, we've gotten this out of perspective here. Let's, let's get back on track. And I was, I, I learned. I'm like, I'm, wow, I didn't know these things. It was very impressive. I was very surprised that they referenced a particular book. I'm going to give you that in a little bit, not right the second, but I will uh, give you that reference because I was surprised because it was written from a person who is Southern Baptist, who doesn't like people to know he's Southern Baptist, but he's one of the best authors and preachers out there today. He gets under a lot of scrutiny, but his understanding of this charismatic movement apparently impressed these people in, that were leaders within the Assembly of God and Foursquare Gospel and Pentecostal churches. This was particularly Assemblies of God that I was meeting with, that they recommended this book. And I was, I was surprised after I read it. But I want to give you some words because most of us don't talk about these things uh, in this detail. I want to first talk about A2. That's going to re reference Acts 2. I want to have that up behind me in case you're drawing your own little chart. And I recommend if you're going to draw a chart, you don't have to connect it to this particular verse. You don't have to have that all written down. But you want to have A2 on the left-hand side of your chart. If you're going to draw a hard line, you can draw a hard line, but I don't have that behind me. And then I've got 1C12-15. That just stands for 1 Corinthians 12 to 15. And the reason why I want to draw this distinction is because there is a distinction that you can't tell just by looking at the words uh, in, in the original. It doesn't, it doesn't show it in the English. So I want to give it to you in the, in the Greek. But I do believe in the context, in the description, and what happens, they're very distinct. So on the left-hand side, on A2 side, Acts 2, what we see frequently repeated is this Greek word. You see that up behind me? It's hard to probably figure out what that is, so I've got it transliterated. You say it like this, dialectos. What I don't... Yeah, I do have it. It'll come up behind me. The definition of dialectos, it literally means language speaking. You'll see that come up behind me, I think. Yeah, language speaking. Now, in Acts chapter 2, let's... We're going to talk about this in a minute. We're going to, we're going to talk about the details of what happened in, on the day of Pentecost. But I'm going to look at 1 Corinthians 12 to 15, 1C 12, 15. This is a Greek word you'll see come up behind me. And the way you say it is glossolalia. And the definition of glossolalia literally is tongue speaking. Now, so there is a hard line between these two. I don't have that up behind me, but you can draw that on your chart because they are not the same. One means language speaking. One means tongue speaking. So in 1 Corinthians 12 to 15, the discussion is about tongue speaking. 
In Acts chapter 2, it's language speaking. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13 in particular, if you want to write that, I don't have it up behind me. It talks about, you know, the love chapter. It talks about love is patient, love is kind, goes down the list. And at the very end, it says love never fails. Where there are tongues, they will be still. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there is partial knowledge, that will no longer exist because it becomes full knowledge. So, at, and if you read it, it's people say, well, that's when Jesus comes back. So when Jesus comes back, those things are going to stop. That's what that means. No, it's not. The Greek word there in 1 Corinthians 13 is teleon, and that is in, there's a rule in the Greek language, as in many languages, just not in English, that you, the gender follows the, the statement. So if it's talking about a man or a woman, it's going to either be in the masculine or the feminine gender. That's the way the whole statement will be. All the words will have those endings that, that align with that. If you don't know if it's a man or a woman, but you know it's a person, it will automatically follow the masculine. That's one of those things that gets confusing. You read the New Testament, you think, well, God must have been a chauvinist. No, it's the language that it's written in. He is, is the default. If you're talking about a human, it's a he, if you don't know if it's a male or female. That's just the way it's been done. English language is somewhat similar. Uh, we're getting further away from that, but it's easier to understand in that original Greek language if you can see why they use these genders. There is a neutral gender or a neuter gender, and that is never used when you're talking about a person. It's against the rules. Never, ever use neutral gender or neuter gender to refer to a person. And the statement, that which is perfect in 1 Corinthians 13, when that which is perfect comes, is that's exactly what it means. It's not the person that is perfect, it's that which is perfect. Teleon, it's in the neutral gender. It's not talking about Jesus, it's not talking about a person. It's talking about a thing. And if, if it's talking about a thing, what is that? Well, it goes on to explain you will have all that you need to know. You'll have all the knowledge, not partial knowledge. At the time, you know, when Acts is being written or when 1 Corinthians is being written, you might be close to Paul. It's like, I, I know what Paul was inspired to write because I see him writing and I've read some of it. I've heard what he says. Or then there's James. Maybe you're close to James and you hear some of what James is being inspired to write, but not Paul or John or Peter. You get partial at the time that this is written, you only had partial. And at some point in time, it's all going to be put together. That which is, it can be translated, that which is perfect, that which is complete, that which is mature. So when the church reaches a time and God says, you have all the knowledge you need right now, there you go. That's all you need to fulfill my will for you. Most, even liberal scholars, interpret this to mean when the Bible is complete, then these things will stop. And that's troubling. He's like, oh my goodness. Well, the Bible's been complete for some time now. So, so people aren't going to be um, getting direct inspiration that we continue to add to the Bible? No, at some point in time, it's going to be done. That's what it says. And God was so grand in His sovereignty that He provided us a scripture that tells us that's going to happen. But love will never fail. These other things, they're going to be done away with. Faith, hope, and love will remain. These things won't. 
Don't, don't be putting so much emphasis on these things. And that's what they were doing. But I, I've heard people be very cruel to missionaries, where missionaries will come back from some country that has a dialect in a particular language that no one understands. And so missionaries go there, like the missionaries we support. They go to an area, they've got to learn the language so they can deliver them scripture. And people will go there and they'll be, you know, having a spiritual moment at a campfire at night. And the next thing you know, the missionary comes back and says, I don't know how it happened, but I just felt led by the spirit I needed to preach. And I preached the same message I preached when I was back here with you guys. I preached it. I don't know their language, so I didn't preach it in their language. I just spoke in English. And people came to me afterwards understanding they needed Jesus. And I've heard people be cruel to missionaries who tell stories like that and say, well, you know, 1 Corinthians 13 says that that will stop. And it stopped when the Bible was done, so that's a lie. The, the devil was using you. Like, what in the world? It makes me just want to move away like lightning's going to strike these people. I want you to understand something. 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about glossolalia, tongue speaking. And if you read the context all the way, 1 Corinthians 12 to 15, tongue speaking was a God language, a language that nobody understood at all, except God, who gave it as a gift to different people who were able to speak in this God language, and nobody could understand it. In fact, you weren't even supposed to share that unless somebody was gifted with the gift of interpretation. And it could be you. But you're not supposed to share that if someone is not gifted with the gift of interpretation, which necessarily means no one's going to understand it unless God inspires them with this gift of interpretation so it can be translated. All of that, that big ball of wax, is going to end when God gives us his, all the knowledge we need. What happened in Acts chapter 2 is very different. But in churches like this, we get it confused. We say, well, tongue speaking, it's over, it's stopped. But be careful with that. Don't, don't even say that. Be careful. Notice how I've been careful. God will stop that when He's given us all that we need. We can let Him, you know, if people are doing it uh, in front of us, I've had people claim they're doing it in front of me many, 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 many times. I check my Bible to see if what they're saying. We're supposed, my Bible and your Bible says test the spirits. Test the spirits. Let, see if what they say aligns with Scripture. This is a final authority, not what any man says, not what I say even. None of us can supersede the wisdom of God. But if you go to Acts chapter 2, and let's just peel that back a little bit. So the, there's, at this time, Matthias has been selected, so there's 12 apostles again. The apostles are given this gift, and it's not even clear how the gift happens because they speak, they deliver the message as the church begins and the crowds hear it. And if you, if you look at the languages listed in Acts chapter 2, there are more languages listed than there are apostles. So in other words, more than 12. So it's like, oh, wow, that's hard to think about. So, so is it that... The, the special miracle happened that, that everybody simply heard their language and the apostles were just speaking in theirs? Yeah, I, it doesn't say exactly how it happened, except what it does say is that everyone heard 
the message in their own language. And that was called dialectos, language speaking. Now think about this. I want you to think about it. You've got a diagram. Maybe you drew it already. Up behind me, you've got a little bit of one. Acts chapter 2, otherwise behind me is A2 over there. 1 Corinthians 12 to 15 over there. On the language speaking, Acts chapter 2, the, uh, the message was delivered through the apostles and everybody understood. No need for any interpreter. No interpretation needed. Everybody understood. Glossolalia in 1 Corinthians 12 to 15, that the church was having so much of a problem with overemphasizing and doing it too much. Nobody understood. An interpreter was needed. God had to inspire somebody with a gift so that others could understand what was being said. One of them, no interpreter is needed. And the other one, you have to have an interpreter. So, so you can just forget about the Greek words being completely different and the meanings being completely different. What happened was completely different. So if a missionary comes back and says, they heard their language, even though I don't know it. I preached and they heard their language. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that will stop. What happened in, the, in Acts chapter 2 when the apostles preached and everyone heard and understood in their own language? Okay, I realize you normally don't get that deep in preaching on Sunday mornings, but that is what I wanted to talk about quickly. If you want to, want to understand a little bit more of what the Assemblies of God churches were asking, and to be fair, what they asked the people to read was this book, Charismatic Chaos by John F. MacArthur, Jr. And if you read it, it's an older book, but if you read it, understand what they were telling the people was, Read this. This is a perspective that completely opposes what we've been doing. And they weren't saying they agreed with everything in the book, but they were saying that they believed that they had gotten off focus and books like this could help them get back on focus. The main thing is get your truth from God's word. That's the main source. So don't even believe everything John F. MacArthur Jr. tells you. Your source book is the Bible. All right, so let's go to the next um, Holy Spirit, I've got three things, convicting, good guide, I've got manifestations, and now let's talk about the indwelling, because this is the part that John's talking about. This is the part we're supposed to be emphasizing. This is a very special part we need to understand. So in order to do that, we should look at least at a, at a piece, and we should look at the whole chapter, we just don't have time, uh, of the a description of the new covenant. And this is in Hebrews chapter 9. If you want to understand the new covenant concept, you would fail if you don't include Hebrews 9 in your reading. 9.17 says, For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Does that make sense to everybody? When a will, a will is put into effect after the person who made it dies. We all understand that about a, a will, right? You write a will... It doesn't take effect until you die. And so God inspired the writer of Hebrews to explain to us that Christ's will, the new covenant, could not take effect until he died. For those of us who struggle with the whole thief on the cross thing I've talked about so many times before, read that. The new covenant 
Jesus' new covenant could not take effect until he died. Okay, so if you understand that, Jesus' death made the new covenant go into effect. All right, so now, understanding that, let's read that verse again. John chapter 7, verse 39, the last of our text today. Now, this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. It's almost the same thing. Jesus has not yet been glorified because he hasn't died and ascended and been enthroned at the right hand of God. He's not been glorified yet. So that's why the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Holy Spirit, has not been given yet. So going back to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 and following, just to remind you, this is, a, this is the way God introduced the indwelling Holy Spirit, because it had to be. And then afterwards, if you'll remember, I don't have the verse up here, but in Acts 2.38, Peter preached when they said, hey, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he was speaking of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Here's a chart. Some of you have seen it. There it is. Uh, that is basically um, a way that you could explain how someone accesses the grace through our faith. And you've got the process there. Uh, it's kind of hard to see, probably up behind me, but there's one of them. Now, I'll show you another one in a minute. This one is uh, of the temple, Herod's temple. And I want to focus on a particular area uh, this area right there, and that is uh, a special area. So I want to show you the next slide. We'll, we're zooming into that. And I want to show you where the seven-inch curtain is. You'll see it. just went up behind me. The seven-inch curtain was there to separate one area known as the Holy of Holies from everything else in the entire temple complex, especially in that holy place, the Holy of Holies was distinct even beyond that. The high priest could go in there once a year to make sacrifices for the people of God behind the veil, behind the seven-inch thick curtain. That's a thick curtain. I don't know if you've ever seen one that thick, but I haven't. That's a thick curtain. And it's there to represent a distinction in the area where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. What's behind there? Why, why nobody else could go in there? What's behind there is the glory and the power of God referenced as the Spirit of God. So when David was thinking about the tabernacle and he was thinking about, don't take the Spirit from me, he's thinking about the power and glory of God that he wants to still have access to because that's what makes him a great king is nothing about himself, it's all about God. So in the Holy of Holies in Herod's temple... This is after Solomon's temple. Um, you still have the Holy of Holies, and it's where the glory, power, and Spirit of God, all those things describe the same thing, resides. And if you'll remember, when Jesus died on the cross, that seven-inch curtain was torn in two from top to bottom, symbolizing that God just ripped it like a like a guy on the power team rips a phone book in half. God ripped that seven-inch curtain from top to bottom, and that symbolizes no longer is the power and glory of God staying in one place 
in a man-made temple. Now the Spirit of God is available to us because Jesus died on the cross. And that will could be put into effect once he is glorified, ascends to heaven and is enthroned at the right hand, and that's already happened. So the Spirit of God is accessible to us, and that's why Peter preached and all the others heard it in their own language. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, meaning the indwelling Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean everybody had supernatural manifestations after this happens, after you're baptized. No. What it means is you have the power and glory of God residing in you. And it's amazing how God set this up. Angels, they're still a thing. Angels are for our protection. Angels are around. Jesus, we read in John chapter 14, we'll, we'll look at that in greater detail. He says, if you need something, come to me and I'll go to the Father on your behalf. Well, isn't that kind of nice? He's enthroned at the right hand of God. He's been made judge and king of kings and lord of lords. Wow. And we can access him because he died on the cross. We, he, he, he set it up for his will to be put into effect. We can talk to him too. And he'll go to the Father on our behalf. And on top of that, we get the Holy Spirit in us, the power of God, the glory of God hosted in our temple, the body. It's a wonderful teaching, and we don't need to miss that concept of how God has given us all these tools for our success. Look, this, look at this behind me. There's another chart. And this is the one that I have drawn so many times on a napkin and led multiple people to Christ, showing how once you hear about the gospel, you really don't have any, you don't, you don't have any faith. But then once you choose to believe, you've entered into faith. That's part of your faith. James 2 clearly says that's not all of your faith. That's part of your faith, and that faith is the access into the grace of God. Acts 2, no. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is a gift of God. It's not of yourselves so that no one can boast. Your faith means nothing without the cross, but your faith is the access to God's grace. God sent his son to die for the world, but not everybody is saved. Well, then how do we access that grace? Through faith. So many stories, so many illustrations. I've talked to you about the build your house on the rock, which is build your house on the foundation that is living for Jesus, doing what he said. He says, this wise man is the one who, who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. It's like the man who builds his house on the rock and the waters rise and the house stays. The foolish one's the one that doesn't take these words of mine. They hear these words of mine and don't put them into practice. It's about living for Jesus. That's part of your faith. It's beyond just belief. He's, we back in, uh, I think it was back in May, there was a message, uh, Jesus as more than a Savior. That's, that's one of those things I talked about earlier. You have to understand Jesus set an example of selflessness. And too many times Christianity, we try to paint it a picture to be, oh, this is selfish. And we don't say it that way. What we want is a Savior without the Lord. We want to do a simple thing. Let's pray this prayer, and, and now you're good. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to make any commitment. Just say this prayer. We're good. Got a Savior. Jesus saved me. I'm good. Don't have to change. Don't have to live any differently. It's simple, easy. This is, all, this is 
sickening, and it's all over the world now. You don't get the Savior without the Lord. You have to make a decision to live for Him. There's a reason why so many people are wandering from the faith, because they never were taught biblical Christianity in the first place, so they don't have what they need. It's important that we understand this selflessness. It's not about, I want to be saved. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. It's more about, God wants to use me so that other people go to heaven, so that other people are saved. Our salvation is not completely selfish. It has to be, like Jesus, selfless. I live for Him so that the light of Jesus can shine through me and others can come to know Him. And if you grab a hold of that, maybe you've got the biblical concept of Christianity. All right, so up behind me, you also see an illustration of the cards that we have out in the lobby. Pretty much has all those scriptures that go along with those charts that you've already seen. Draw it on a napkin, do a PowerPoint presentation, however you want to do it. And once again, I will let you know, and this is an indictment on me, not on anybody else, but in, if you are, are close to any man in the church, or even if you're not, you can just go talk to them, in their gym notebooks, and you'll see up behind me the symbol, in their gym notebooks, there's material on this, and they can, you can make copies of it. Just ask them for a copy of different things. Inside this notebook, there, you will find a whole... There's a, I've written a pamphlet many years ago on baptism. It's in there in large print version. There's one on spiritual gifts, and there's like 18 more supplemental pages. If you don't want to do the, uh, the Charismatic Chaos book, it's in those gym notebooks, uh, a study that's got a lot of that stuff in there. And on top of that, um, if I don't have it in there, I'll get it in there. The distinction between dialectos and glossolalia. I have not read that in any book, so I should probably get it in there. But let's go ahead and button this whole thing up. Complex and beneficial things to remember from what we've gone over today. Let's go through five bullets one at a time. God gifts his indwelling Holy Spirit to those who make Jesus Lord of their lives. And this is the power of God within us. When you're having a difficult day, that's why I drew railing on my the thing I draw on the napkin on those steps, you get the power of God in the Holy Spirit. When you are going through something in life and you just know, I cannot do this. No, you can't. But the Spirit of God in you can enable you and empower you to be able to do that. And I look forward to when we get further in John and get to talk a little bit more about the power of the Holy Spirit, because that's going to be a fun subject. Next, supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit do not necessarily indicate the indwelling Holy Spirit. We see that in Acts chapter 10. Third, some people, organizations, have overemphasized supernatural manifestations of the Holy Spirit and caused confusion. I have a little note here, 1 Corinthians 14.33, God is not the author of that. In our churches, there should not be confusion. And if there is, we're off track. Fourth, some people prefer to cling to their traditional beliefs over adhering to Scripture. And what happens here is it doesn't feel like it. To us, we, we base, a lot of times we'll, we, we think the Holy Spirit is all about a feeling, because that's what we've been taught in many of our churches. You come to church and it's not really worship. You really don't have worship unless you feel good. I thought it was more about making God feel good, not me. 
When, since when did worship switch to me? Well, in some of our churches, it has. And people think, I, I just, you know, I come into church and I just, I felt like I got hit overhead with a two by four. Well, good. Maybe you had church. Maybe you needed that. I know I have. Sometimes when I'm studying stuff before I deliver a message to you, I have to get down on my knees and beg God for mercy because I'm getting hit over the head with a two by four as I'm simply looking and going, oh, oh my goodness, Jeff, get it together. Sometimes in church, that should happen. Sometimes you should feel like you just got walloped with the Scripture and the Spirit just confronted you. It's not about your feelings. It's not, it's not about that. It's about God's feelings. How does God feel after we worship? Are we worshiping Him? Let's make Him feel good. And it makes Him feel good when I'm backing up and going, take a breath. God, your word says this. I've been doing something else. I'm sorry. You know that makes the Father happy. What doesn't make Him happy might make you feel good. Okay, I know what I've always been taught. This is what I believe. I know, I know, I just read that verse, but I know what I believe. That's not going to make God happy. You might feel better about it. Walk with a bounce in your step. I feel good. I know what I believe. I can call 20 people right now and they'll confirm it. What about God? I dare you. I dare you to ask God on any subject, any time. God, do I need to correct my thinking on this? Okay. Last, God set us up for His glory and our success. Yes, He did. He has given us all the tools we need to fulfill His will here on earth, including tools that we don't even use sometimes. But that power of God within you can get you through whatever you're going through. And I thank God that we have a loving Father whose love is unfailing, never, ever stops. Let's pray. God, thank You so much for loving us so much. And You give us every tool necessary. You abundantly provide us with everything we need to please you. God, forgive us when we go our own way and do our own thing. Forgive us when we just misunderstand something and we realize we need to get a grip. Guide us, help us, even if you've got to knock us into place, we'll take it, Lord, because we, we, we want to make you happy. We know it's not about our feelings. It's about worshiping you and glorifying and honoring you. You've given us your spirit so that we can do this. God, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.